the presentation I will give today is the result of long-term collaborative uh, work with, on uh, migrant illegality with Blanca Gracias Mascareñas uh, uh, from the University of Pompeu Fabra in, uh, in Barcelona. And as this, is, as this is the first session in the seminar series, I will attempt to develop the reflections that helped us frame the topic of migrant illegality uh, in our research and in our collaboration with a number of colleagues. Now, I'm going to do something very sacrilegious as a sociologist, which is attempting to speak about illegality in general terms, when the most solid fact about, that we know about migrant illegality is that it can vary tremendously from country to country and across historical periods. And one of the reasons for this is the now accepted understanding that migrants' illegality is first and foremost a product not of the nature of migrants, but of national legal frameworks. But in, in our last piece with, with Blanca, which I will partially synthesize here, uh, we try to offer reflections that are intellectually and empirically productive and advance research suggestions that are uh, flexible enough to be specified for each, each historical case. At least, I hope so. So here's the argument in a, in a nutshell. The intensified uh, repression of illegal immigration in the past two decades uh, has resulted in the proliferation of internment <coughs> spaces and rising rates of deportation. However, meanwhile, research on unauthorized migration has departed from the equation of migrant illegality with absolute exclusion. While many undocumented migrants are detained and deported, most are not. Those who remain do not only hold jobs and incorporate into their direct social environments, but also accumulate traces of long-term presence and good conduct, in part with a view to future legalization. And because future access to legal status depends on the successful performance of deservingness, legalization raises the issue of the frames through which deservingness is claimed and acknowledged. Today I will bring to light these recent developments in the scholarship of migrant illegality by examining the nexus between the social incorporation of undocumented migrants on the one hand and the moral economy that regulates their uncertain access to legal status on the other. One of the arguments is that we cannot fully understand the architecture of available legitimation strategies for legalization without relating them to the actual mode of incorporation that give modes of incorporation that give these strategies purchase an empirical resonance. And, and which marginally provide the infrastructure for migrant political agency. I will first recap theoretical inroads made in the last 20 years in, uh, on the study of migrant illegality as a, an exclusionary political institution. Then I will detail the avenues of informal incorporation experienced by undocumented migrants in spite of their formal exclusion. In the third part, I will turn to the integration of irregular migrants into the formal institutions of their societies of residence through both legal and illegal pathways. And I will argue that the incorporation of, uh, of uh, migrants involves not so much invisibility as camouflage, presenting the paradox that camouflage improves with uh, integration. In the last part of the talk, which is also the core of what I want to get at today, uh, we'll deal with the moral economy embedded in legalization claims and programs, and in particular, identify tensions traversing these deservingness frames. But let me go back to migrant illegality first, and that's my empty slide. Uh, historically speaking, the existence of regular international migrants is rather new and, and results from the gradual emergence of the modern system of authorization during the 19th and 20th century. Until quite recently, people were considered legitimate until they were explicitly declared undesirable, which could result in massive deportations, 
such as with Mexicans in the US in the 1930s, or, or Polish people, in, in, migrants in, expelled from France in the same period. The degree of desirability did not depend as much on the person's formalized legal status as on their perceived capacity to work and sustain themselves, or, and whether they were not considered politically subversive or ethnically incompatible. However, the growing salience of nation-state boundaries throughout the 20th century led to more effective exclusion. Papers became increasingly important to the point of virtually re reversing the former regime of authorization. And as Blanca and I sum up in one formula, today uh, um, immigrants are assumed illegal unless they're explicitly declared uh, legal. Among the most important analytical inroads made by migration scholars and colleagues working on citizenship studies is the realization that migrant illegality is not primarily about deportation. Although deportation can have devastating consequences uh, for the people concerned and their families, most unauthorized <coughs> migrants are not deported, either because they're not arrested or because their deportation procedure does not go through. Thus, analyzing illegality as a political institution means examining its implications for the majority of undocumented migrants, those who stay. Irregular migrant civic exclusion is itself a form of subordinate inclusion. In other terms, illegality regulates mobility not through physical borders, but through the creation of a hierarchy of rights. And the bottom of this hierarchy is not defined by deportation, but by what uh, Nicolas de Genova has termed deportability. Other scholars have insisted on, uh, on the informal incorporation of irregular migrants, despite formal exclusion. Now, a range of political scientists has at long underlined the set of rights formally granted to non-citizen residents in immigration countries. But most rights-based research uh, concentrated on the condition of legal denizens, legal denizens. In contrast, the integration of undocumented migrants had typically been articulated in terms of informal membership. Indeed, analyses of the civic condition of illegal migrants have tended to rest on the dichotomy between formal exclusion on the one hand and informal incorporation on the other. The assumption has been that irregular residents mainly receive access to the latter. From this perspective, empirical studies, especially in, in sociology and anthropology, have provided rich descriptions of the ways undocumented migrants integrate into mostly local environments, benefit from the humanitarian support of uh, non-governmental organizations, and take part in myriad institutions such as schools, churches, ethnic community groups, uh, art collectives and political associations. At the discursive level, migrants contest their legal identities and those, the, these legal identities that are assigned to them with uh, counter strategies and assertions of subjective legitimacy. As one attorney uh, in, a member for self, uh, in a meeting for Salvadoran migrants in the US that, attended, uh, that Susan Kutin uh, attended in the 1990s, as he summed up, law is one thing, justice another. Thus, this line of analysis emphasizes the tension between formal law on the one hand and informal practices, social dissent, and discursive resistance on the other. Uh, in our work with Blanca, uh, we seek to go beyond such informal citizenship, to, to use the term that Saskia Assassin uh, coined uh, at the end of the, uh, the 1990s, or the beginning of the 2000s, the, the last decade. Indeed, while these discoveries add important nuances to the literature that focuses on exclusionary aspects of migrant illegality, their dualistic approach risks conferring too much coherence to legality, and thus to illegality itself. On the contrary, it often turns out that formal law excludes and includes at the same time. As contradictions are 
also located within the law, intentions cut simultaneously through law, policy, and practice. Thus, we agree with um, Annelise Riles uh, that, quote, to define socio-legal studies merely as the critique of rules from the point of view of norms is to seriously limit the discipline's potential, unquote. And thus, we agree that a political sociological analysis of migrant illegality must go beyond the dichotomy between law in the books and law in action. The, sorry, this leads me to the next set of points, which, is, uh, which touch on the dynamics of formal incorporation and the political consequences. Although the condition of undocumented migrants often results in their exclusion for form from formal institutions, this exclusion is too often <coughs> taken for granted. First of all, contrary to common representations, so-called undocumented migrants rarely have no documents. They often possess legitimate documents from their home countries, which they can easily renew at their consulates. At times, their origin governments can play an active role, as in the US, where Mexican consulates lobby banks and public institutions to uh, accept their matriculation cards as legitimate identification, irrespective of legal status. In countries of residence, local and national institutions may grant them legitimate, if inferior, forms of identification, such as driver's licenses, municipal IDs, or tax numbers. Migrants may also hold expired documents or valid registration numbers from a previous period in which they held some forms of legal status. And although, and, and, and in some countries, this can be very important. Finally, irregular migrants can acquire formal elements of civic membership, such as, the social, such as socu sorry, social security numbers, through illegal means whether due to the absence of control from granting institutions or the unequal closure of various social systems, as argued in the, uh, by the late Michael Gomez, or by the bureaucratic sabotage of, by sympathetic civil servants that place professionalism and humanitarian concerns uh, ahead of restrictive definitions of their publics, as illustrated, for example, by John von der Leyen in the Netherlands or Ellen Mera in, uh, in the US, or by forging renting and borrowing documents. As was shown, for example, by uh, Elie Vasta here in the UK. The important point here is that these, formal, these informal arrangements may lead to formal, although often illegal, outcomes. The distinction between informality and illegality is nowhere more useful as in the study of irregular migrants' employment. Jobs do not magically become informal because unauthorized migrants occupy them. The level of formalization of an economy is a structural feature upon which new migrants have little influence, even though they are often thought of naturally embodying the underground economy or even as importing it from third world cultures. In reality, in economies and sectors dominated by informal businesses or partly undeclared activities, undocumented migrants will hold for informal jobs. In very formalized economies, they will most likely hold formal jobs, illegally and through fraud. But that doesn't make them informal jobs. Yet, as, as Giuseppe uh, Scortino aptly, no aptly noted, if civic exclusion is a form of inclusion, it means inclusion at a higher price. As restrictions and controls get more stringent, the, mo the cost of uh, formal integration become higher, and not incidentally for our uh, our coming discussion of deservingness, this also means that uh, becoming more formal requires committing more infractions. It's the consequences of restrictions. 
But as a, tra as a transition to the issue of deservingness, I need to say a few words about camouflage. Both formal and informal integration suggest that the notion of invisibility, widely used to describe the existence of undocumented migrants, may in fact prove inadequate. Irregular migrants are usually at their most visible in the first weeks of residence when, to quote from Scartino again, tacit knowledge about the locale is plainly unavailable, and when this, uh, this, they thus run a, a, a higher risk of being detected. As studies on undocumented migrants tend to recruit informants through NGOs and support organizations, they run the risk of overemphasizing uh, the peculiar situation of these not yet integrated newcomers who are more visible, more vulnerable, and, in need of, and, and more in need of assistance. Ironically, only as unauthorized migrants get more integrated into their societies of residence can they better avoid the punitive visibility of arrest and detention while becoming less readily available to researchers and less willing to talk to them. Yet, they cannot be said to be invisible, properly speaking. Undocumented migrants live, work, shop, walk, and drive among the rest of the population in the most visible ways. In a recent piece, Blanca and I argued that the undetectability of integrated and unauthorized migrants can be better grasped by the notions of camouflage and the undocumented closet. Camouflage points to uh, a situation of invisibility within visibility. To a certain extent, it, it has a connection with invisibility, but more maybe with a myth of invisibility. Uh, in what sense? In a sense that if the illegal is believed to be invisible, then anyone who's visible is perceived as legal. Of course, in, being camouflaged is not just an individual matter. It's very much connected with ethnicity. And in, if you live in the Netherlands, it's much, better, it's much easier to be camouflaged if you're white, for example. If you're non-white, you can be stigmatized as potentially, uh, morally stigmatized as potentially illegal. But at the same time, ethnicity and, and minority ethnicity plays an ambivalent role in the signaling of someone as potentially illegal. It, it signals, it, it can signal it, but it's also, it's, uh, it can so also pr pr produce a form of camouflage within a given ethnic minority community. So it's a, it's a stigma and a protection at the same time. So there's an ambivalent relation between camouflage and ethnicity or uh, ethnic minority status. Now the closet is a notion borrowed by, from lesbian and gay studies and famously um, deployed by Yves Kosatsky Cedric in her 1990 book, Epistemology of the Closet. The concept of the closet points to well-known dilemmas associated with secrecy and coming out, among which having to handle the tension between one's real status and one's perceived status, never knowing for sure whether those around are aware of one's status, selectively repeating the coming out ritual uh, as one finds oneself in new situations in which uh, a wrong status is again a sign, or conversely, maintaining a don't ask, don't, don't, ask, don't tell uh, policy in key environments such as the workplace, even, even when knowledge is suspected. My main message around this theme today is that you cannot understand coming out without a theory of the closet, without a model of the closet. And it's no coincidence that the term coming out has started being used in the United States in the immigrant youth movement. 
Youth born abroad who have spent most of their time in the U.S. are culturally more indistinguishable from their peers. This intensifies the paradigm of the closet in their case while making them more legitimate candidates for a legalization. Passage through the school system and other uh, non-exclusionary institutions heightens their feelings of legitimacy and hence their frustration. While providing them with uh, more cultural resources for, for uh, rights claiming. As this example shows, the example of the dream, uh, Dreamers movement, adopting the language of coming out requires measuring the full implications of the closet by distinguishing it, distinguishing it from static powerlessness, which is often associated with the notion of in the sh being in, sh in the shadows, for example. The dialectic of the closet is the missing link for understanding the passage from the shadows of everyday life to formal political claims making. For sexual minorities and other discreditable groups, the closet is at once a period of painful dissimulation and a moment of self-discovery, an autonomous construction that is a preparation for coming up. It's a, the paradox of the closet is that it's a condition for coming up. In the case of irregular migrants, it is itself a period of resource acquisition and uh, accumulation of civic capital, which can late, later be mobilized by functioning as a political pivot. In both the cases of sexual minorities and migrants, what we call the positive productivity of the closet provides the infrastructure of individual and collective agency. Together, these mechanisms described, that I just described point, point to a key paradox of restrictive migration policies. By closing some legalization opportunities or forcing previously legal residents to fall back into illegality, they increase the ranks of long-term integrated undocumented migrants, migrants who would say only like papers, and whom, once daring to come out, have played leading roles in pro-legalization movements of the past decade. We suggest analyzing, analyzing uh, these movements in the broader context of what we called uh, the moral economy of migrant illegality. In the paper uh, entitled uh, Beyond Informal Citizenship, we argued that illegality does not typically function as an absolute marker of illegitimacy, but rather as a handicap within a continuum of probationary citizenship. Equipped with an understanding of citizenship in non-dichotomous terms, but also with a holistic approach to the law and society nexus, we propose to scrutinize the various ways in which undocumented migrants can make themselves less illegal, and say less illegal rather than just analyzing them as illegal but licit, for example. In cases where few legalization avenues are available, being less illegal mostly boils down to becoming less deportable. In other cases, it is more tightly connected to the prospect of acquiring full legal status. Strategies to become less illegal include available strategies uh, to, to uh, not committing petty crimes, such as uh, public transportation fraud, so as to avoid interaction with the police, not committing serious crimes so as to avoid becoming a priority for removal programs, paying taxes and keeping tax receipts, being faithful to one's employer with a view to future sponsorship, keeping the same constructed identity over time so as to build a consistent trail for legalization, being in contact with institutional third parties that may act as grantors and guarantors of deservingness, whether by signing certificates of good conduct or by providing proofs of presence to be included in legalization applications. The gradational character of illegality can be simultaneously observed at the levels of policy, practice, and migrant perception. 
And it's, it's suffused with moral judgments about degrees of, of deservingness and, or, or undeservingness. At the policy level, as we, saw, as we saw, most illegal migrants are not removed. And the bulk of programs officially focus on those who have committed serious crimes, even though in many respects uh, this, this, is this is questioned. At the level of police practice, local officers tend to make moral distinctions between categories of unauthorized migrants and to designate periodic groups for enforcement based on this hierarchy. Migrants and home country uh, communities themselves do not perceive deportation as a consequence of illegality, strictly speaking. And, and if you look at the statistics, rightly so. Uh, illegality is, is not a, it's, it's a, necess it's, it's not a sufficient um, condition for, uh, for deportation. So, but they, they perceive it as a, not as a product of illegality, but as a product of bad luck, laziness, or irresponsible behavior as my uh, former student Jill Alpes has shown in her dissertation in the case of Cameroon. As it reaches the formal level of political claims and administrative procedures, legalization brings up the issue of the frames through which migrant legal deservingness is asserted. In the last part of this talk, I want to argue that deservingness frames, as they are mobilized by migrants, activists, and government agents, are traversed by several tensions. A first tension opposes demands for universal legalization based on mere presence and claims to legal status based on specific situations. On the one hand, claiming legalization on the basis of a particular niche, being a student, a worker, or a parent, for example, risks validating and reinforcing the restrictiveness of current migration re regimes for those not sharing these same attributes, as my colleague uh, Walter Nichols has argued. On the other hand, although niches can seem to clash at the discursive level, in practice, opening one door does not always mean closing other doors. The master frame of the deserving migrants uh, may even be reinforced by the multiplicity of its deployments and become available for further uses. This is what we argue. Perhaps a more salient tension appears when the opposition, uh, with the opposition between strategies for the acquisition of legal status based on vulnerability and those based on civic performance. These are the two frames, the vulnerability frame and the civic performance frame that we developed in our work with uh, Albert Kader. On the one hand, in an era of increasing criminalization of migration, the good candidate for asylum has seemingly become the one who would have preferred not to migrate, but has come and stayed, or stayed due to exceptional circumstances associated with vulnerability. And it's a paradox of especially entry policy in an age of heightened nationalism, uh, is, uh, whether it's for asylum or family migration, uh, love for the country is probably the least legitimate motive to enter, uh, to claim uh, asylum or, uh, or uh, to be a family migrant. Uh, it's actually a, it's a pollution on, on the main on the main uh, on the main motive. Circumstances that define vulnerability include, among others, persecution in one's home country, being an un unaccompanied minor, certified medical emergency, and victimization during or after migration. This is for, for vulnerability. But on the other hand, restriction policies have also tended to define deserving migrants 
as those who can demonstrate their integration and contributions as residents, which is what we call the civic performance frame. Performance-based deservingness has been recently emphasized by migrant movements and their supporters. This is well encapsulated in the following slogan from the Dreamers movement in the US. We believe people should be asked for their, for their grades, not for their papers. Similarly, France undocumented migrants recently made uh, claims to legalization on the grounds that they were integrated and productive workers often employed in the formal economy. But because this source of legality typically requires the successful performance of formal membership, it tends to be gendered. Indeed, female migrants are more likely to have worked off the books. And they're often erased from bills and other official traces of household lives, making it more difficult for them to prove their long-term presence. At the same time, performance-based deservingness can itself be ridden by yet another, a third uh, type of tension between deservingness based on cultural integration and deservingness based on economic performance. With what Jan Willem Davendak and his colleagues have called the culturalization of citizenship results in migrants' linguistic, ideological, and religious allegiances being increasingly scrutinized as indicators of integration. These requirements are also implicated in legalization politics and policy. Migrant rights activists and representational brokers frequently describe migrants in terms that, to quote from Walter Nichols, resonate with the moral and legal norms of the nation. With such focus on cultural issues, one might expect economic integration to remain marginal within calculations of civic deservingness. Yet, some civic rituals, so, so for example, going on strike in a country like France, where labor conflict is an important trope of national uh, life, well, these civic rituals are uh, sometimes indistinguishably economic and cultural. But more, this is more of a joke, but more importantly, in, in neoliberal terms, gainful uh, employment, self-sufficiency, and the performance of reliability within precarious labor market are themselves framed as civic duties for citizens as well as for non-citizens. I will go back to that at the end, at the end conclusion. The contrast between how frames clash at the former formal policy uh, level and at the discursive level, and how they're experienced in practice, constitutes yet another type of tension. And I will illustrate this. First, uh, the opposition between um, demands of legalization for all on the one hand and legalization based on specific criteria or case-by-case -case legalization uh, on the other have often torn immigrant uh, uh, movements apart but they often tend to blur at, uh, at, the, at the level of practice. Indeed, regularization applications are always examined individually by authorities. And activists in favor of universal legalization often help migrants with their personal cases, even when this means embracing a logic of individual deservingness. Second example, the vulnerability and performance niches that can be identified in discourse and administrative procedures often do not actually refer to distinct categories of persons, but, to much, but much more often to different framing strategies by the same groups of migrants, which are contingent on changes in the political opportunity structure. 
Migrants do not only adjust their stories, but they also perform real practical and ethical changes in their lives and aspirations, illustrating what uh, my US colleagues Cecilia, Cecilia Mengivar and uh, Sara Morando have called the transformative effects of immigration law. Yet the policy frame of vulnerability translate quite, qu translates quite poorly at the level of migrants' subjective and day-to-day -day presentation of their selves. Indeed, obtaining legal status often requires complex and, legal and lengthy uh, uh, procedures, so it's, it's typically lived as a, as a reward for hard work and achievement based on successful performance including in the case of refugee status and humanitarian legalization, the successful performance of vulnerability. Frame discrepancy can pose a serious, cha serious challenge to real-life migrants. For example, when a vulnerability frame dominates as a necessary passage for obtaining tolerated status, with such as the Duldung in German municipalities, but is subsequently replaced by an opposite performance frame, such as good integration or having a job contract, when the same person aims to be granted a less precarious legal status, after a year, for example. In one French study, a migrant found a solution by constructing two different administrative identities with uh, two separate paper trails uh, in order uh, to be grant, uh, sorry, two separate uh, paper trails based on hopes of, e of either getting <coughs> uh, refugee status or benefiting from employment-based uh, legalization programs. So my colleague sh showed that he would get the bills and he would decide on which, on, on which, uh, on which of his two identities they would, be, uh, they would be credited. The work of immigration attorneys is also challenging when proofs of victimization and civic integration are simultaneously required for, a certain, uh, for, for accessing certain forms of humanitarian legalization, such as with the U visa uh, in the US, which is for victims of domestic violence. I, there's another example that we have from the U.S. is the, the students that are applying to the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival, the program that um, Obama, uh, the executive program that, that Obama decided two years ago. They must prove they were innocent victims of their parents' migration, on the one hand, while also demonstrating that they are contributing citizens and, and performing students. Moreover, the same elements of incorporation can result in contradictory symbolic framings. For example, Formal proofs of integration, which are required in many legalization programs, risk revealing precarious lives and biographical failings, such as, for example, work absenteeism, bad grades, unpaid bills, and might even provide, of course, a hold for detection and deportation in case of rejection. As we saw, the increased uh, Internal controls of my immigration, welfare, and labor authorities have not always driven migrants into the foreground, the, the underground. They've also led them to commit more illegal acts, such as fraud, in order to maintain a level of formalized existence. Uh, this was very much the case in the U.S., where uh, the same elements that could be framed as making people m more legal, for example, paying your taxes, or more deserving of legalization, I mean, uh, uh, so for example, paying your taxes, were also making them more, or could, be could, be le could lead to framing them as the more illegal uh, because, for example, they, 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 they commit identity fraud. Uh, for example, by, by uh, paying taxes on a, on, a, on, a, on a different, I mean, on a social security number that's not yours or uh, on which, uh, which you uh, purchased. 
here the interesting thing is it's not about having elements of illegality and elements of legality that are separate. For example, you know, you go to church, you know, yeah, there's an em elements of informal legitimacy and then you're illegal. It's the same element that, ha that can be the object of contradictory symbolic fra framings. Right? So it's different from some of the, um, some of the um, points that were noted by Susan Coutin, who was looking at those, the, co the, the, the cohabitation of those two types of elements. Here, it's not just they cohabitate, it's the same elements can be uh, framed differently. And the, the, such practical contradictions uh, in the architecture of concrete incorporation, we argue, uh, structure the uh, tensions traversing the politics of migrant deservingness. And they ensure that uh, the symbolic struggles they occasion will remain open and, and the outcome uncertain. As it is time to, uh, to conclude, let me sum up our argument. Um, as a political institution, citizenship contributes to the subordinate inclusion of migrants under the stigma of illegality. But illegal residents emerge from it as sub-citizens rather than absolute non-citizens, or instances of, of uh, Agamben's model of homo sacer. They are framed not only as civic culprits to be punished, but also as civic minors to be redeemed. Blanca Garces Mascarenas and, and I should, in, in some, uh, have some aspects of integration, allow migrants to make themselves less illegal, whether by becoming less detectable or less deportable, by gaining more legitimacy for rights claiming, for making claims in the political realm, or by obtaining successfully uh, uh, formal legalization. Because the politics of legalization bring the question of deservingness to the, to the foreground, today I examine different frames promoted by migrant advocates and legalization programs as legitimate avenues towards legality. These frames simultaneously define a set of distinct legal constraints, administrative tracks, presentation strategies, and life-altering practices. Finally, I insisted on potential tensions between those frames at different levels. Thus, the tension between frames, combined with the increased fragility and reversibility of formal residence permits in the recent period, has translated into a continuum of probationary citizenship, which does not offer a linear route. It provides a contradictory path made of divergent prescriptions, never guaranteeing access to lesser inequality, uh, illegality in any uh, univocal way. Ambiguity confronts both undocumented migrants and the state. From the point of view of migrants, the hope for legalization is inseparably a reasonable ground for self-discipline and a perilous justification for provisionally limited economic claims. But as we suggest in the conclusion of our 2012 article beyond informal citizenship, formal incorporation confronts states with a symmetrical conundrum. On the one hand, the state appears to validate breaches of its own sovereignty by recognizing people and processes seemingly located beyond its control. On the other hand, to quote my colleague uh, Albert Kreller, uh, such recognition can be seen as an expression of an increasingly complex system of migration governance rather than an indicator of simple policy failure. Indeed, when states need to produce, in James Scott's terms, a legible, accessible, permanently identifiable population, easily administered and hence manipulable from the center, they prove more interested in regulating the actual population than in tracing uh, boundaries between members and non-members. In those cases, registration becomes more important than deportation, 
uh, prediction more crucial than eviction. But on the other hand, also taxation might prove more urgent than actual authorization. Well, what, what John Corpy calls the monopoly of a legitimate means of movement is often thought as a condition for the state's embracement of its population. When these two requirements enter in conflict, a state might favor embracement at the expense of the monopoly. The contradiction is only apparent. Indeed, state rationality is not limited to imperatives of sovereignty. Away from ap apocalyptic caricatures, what Foucault described as, or referred to as governmentality, as a regulatory uh, logic, was the logic by which state actors are not so much interested in the law-abiding conformity of individual behavior than in the predictability of collective conduct. A mode of government not so much based on controlling particular subjects than on ensuring overall governability. To quote from Foucault, within the perspective of government, law is not what is important. Its main target is not the people, but the population. In this context, a moderate loss of sovereign control might be the price, the, the price to pay for more efficient embracement. The moral economy we describe in our work may well be the reflection of such rationality. Government agencies have a stake in seeing irregular migrants recognized and taken into account. To quote from Foucault's governmentality courses, the modern state is ensuring that they are not disciplined, but regularized. Unquote. Migrants takes, takes an active part in the process, whether as, as workers, taxpayers, or community members. In so doing, they're making the reasonable bet that the incorporative workings of governmentality can retroact onto the more exclusionary logics of sovereignty. <coughs> Being part of the concrete, legal, bureaucratically existing population, they may perhaps more successfully and more legitimately play, uh, claim a place among the people. And these, these reflections open an original debate with contemporary uh, political theory. Um, I've, I've been quite bothered by the tension in, in Foucault's uh, text, uh, in various uh, courses on governmentality, between his illuminating analysis of governmentality on the, on the one hand, and his rush to give examples on Nazism and its violent drawing of membership boundaries on the other. What Blanca and I argued is that governmentality as a management logic is very much inclusive. That its logic, um, and, and we also argue that its logic of inclusion cannot very well be grasped by uh, human rights framework, but have more to do with public health, road safety, planning the number of schools. If you want to know if you're a bureaucrat and you need to know how many schools to, buy, to, to build for five years from now, your reference is the population, not the people, if you make this distinction. Thus, the governmentality relates to a logic of inclusive control, which can be called cosmopolitan. There's a cosmopolitan imaginary of governmentality, which does not mean it's, it's, a it's not a global imaginary, because it's not about taking into account people that are not here. It's not about saying you need to buy a uh, build a school for people who are in India. Build a school for people who are here. This leads to a paradox. The paradox is that governmentality needs borders. But it needs borders precisely because it's not about membership. Contrary to the idea that the object of governmentality, and to quote Foucault, and that's not, but maybe where I would object to Foucault, that it's not, it's not uh, it, Foucault says it's no longer, the, the object is no longer the territory, but the population. 
uh, I'm going to argue here that um, you need a territory to define a population, which is ironically not required to define a people or a nation. Space does, and bounded space is intrinsic to the cosmopolitan imaginary of governmentality. In no means I'm saying this to justify tough enforcement uh, as a necessary counterpart to multiple inclusion when migrants are inside. But I want to explain why they might cohabitate easily, as for example in the current US migration system. I also want to suggest that uh, when we might be seeing a bifurcation of citizenship in two, two modes of inclusion-exclusion. Uh, externally, I see many examples of inclusion and exclusion based on political membership, I meaning inclusion in the sense of you know, voting abroad, ex uh, abroad con uh, consular extensions, uh, state internationalism, maintaining the p political membership on the outside. But it's also, of course, very restrictive. It's also about preventing, I mean, a reinforcement of, of borders. But I see them, I mean, I, I, I would want to discuss the idea that the, the international projections of sovereignty are very much, today, the, the most salient instantiations of sovereignty today. Internally, if you go beyond official policy discourse uh, into actual modes of incorporation, a much more complex mode of, inc uh, of inclusion uh, takes place. Even though, of course, it's also a mode of exclusion that is uh, connected with interlinked notions of territory and population because it's, it's, it still raises the issue of who belongs to the population. Of course, the form of inclusive citizenship that regulates the inside is very much unequal, hierarchical, differentiated, but we can see it not as a product of civic governmentality, but more as a product of you know, of uh, citizenship as governmentality, but more as a, as a product of citizenship as sovereignty, and its external assertion of membership. A product that governmentality has to do with because it takes the population as it is. But I think we, there's a, there is an intellectual or a conceptual advantage in, in distinguishing, distinguishing those logics, and there's um, separate rationalities. To go back to the issue of deservingness, we, I think we find a version of these tensions in the way migrant deservingness is made both uh, a civic duty and a civic privilege. Definitions of civic deservingness typically apply to a far larger group than just immigrants and cover the entire country. Yet, they weigh harder on migrants, especially when the latter hold precarious legal status, and as, as Bridget has shown, uh, tolerated citizens, uh, the tolerated citizens that migrants are, are thus turned into guardians of good citizenship. They, are, they, are, they, they have to um, embody uh, good citizenship in a much high, hi heightened way. But in this context, on the other side of it, states cannot easily shift policy frames as their attention turns from citizens to migrants by requiring different types of virtues from each group. This is nowhere more visible as with neoliberal constructions of employment. If work is the duty of all citizens, restrictionist governments must spend a high amount of discursive inventiveness to simultaneously turn it, when dealing with migrants, into a privilege only accessible to citizens. 
as states cannot entirely control the extensiveness of their own definitions of deservingness, they may simultaneously promote deservingness frames and limit migrant access to them, whether by preventing immigrants from becoming too integrated, too many years of presence, too much of a social network, too strong a claim to cultural literacy, or conversely, from being recognized as vulnerable. Because what makes us deserving may also make us dangerous from the point of view of migration control, states may thus increasingly restrict the right to deserve and effectively turn it into a civic privilege.